Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Because it's time. It's, it's time for reparations. LGBTIQ rights are black rights. We have always been here. Black queers, we will always be here. It's like, it's a form of cultural imperialism. The only thing I have in common with this character is that she's black. This does not look like me or sound like me. I'm Gary Foley. I'm Francesca Ramsey. This is Amir Rahman. And you're listening to The Race Card. Welcome to The Race Card on Sin 90.7 FM. The time is 3.01. And I'm Amina Ziyard, your host for this afternoon's show. Before we begin, we'd like to do an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the Kulin people as the owners of the land on which we meet, and we pay respect to their elders both past and present. This land was never ceded, and the processes of colonization, occupation, incarceration, and genocide that began over two centuries centuries ago continue to this day. You're listening to our one-hour show where we chat politics, current affairs, and pop culture with a little bit of a twist as well as wrapping up the most thought-provoking issues in Australia for the week. Today, we look at the acceptable faces of Indigenous Australia with guest Stan Grant, the Burmese ethnic community, the Rohingyas, facing the brink of extinction, and the appropriation of Eastern religions and cultures, and our feature discussion is on climate change and Indigenous peoples. Don't forget to get involved in all of the discussions by texting in on 0427 Seven six seven seven six seven or tweet us at the race card. My co-hosts for this weekend's show are no other than Ahmed Yusuf and Poppy Perot. Um, for to start off, I think Poppy's got got the Rohingya story for us. Yeah, to start off, we will look at the ongoing persecution of the Rohingya ethnic group of Burma. The Rohingyas have received international attention as one of the world's most persecuted ethnic groups in the last few years. The Rohingyas who reside in the Rakhine state of northern Burma are of Bengali origin. Persecution of the Rohingyas has existed as early as the 1960s by the military regime. However, following the Rakhine state riots in 2012, hundreds of thousands have fled to nearby countries like Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia and even Australia. Time magazine released a report this week with a study from the International State Crime Initiative that the Rohingyas are facing the brink of extinction. The report enumerates that, sorry, that um, the Rohingya have undergone the first four stages of um, of ethnic cleansing: stigmatization, dehumanization, harassment, violence, and terror, isolation, segregation, systematic awakening, and on the verge of mass annihilation. The sixth stage, which involves the removal of a victim group from a collective history, is already underway in many respects. The report says, "I'll be linking to the re- the report on the Facebook page if you want to have a read of that." So this week, I spoke to Anwar Shah, the president of the Burmese Rohingya Community of Australia, a not-for-profit organisation based in Lakemba, New South Wales. Formed in 1999, the BRCA represent the 4,000 or so Rohingya refugees in Australia. I spoke to Anwar about 
like the issues that the Rohingyas have faced living in Australia and also what we can do closer to home to aid the refugee crisis. So today I have Anwar Shah, who is the president of the Burmese Rohingya Community of Australia. Welcome to the show, Anwar. Hi, thank you. When did the Rohingya refugees first start arriving in Australia? The community was established in 1999, um, from what I've read. And so when did the first wave of migrants settle in Australia? Um, Actually, um, uh, no much Rohingyas are in Australia until now, as uh, um, everyone knows. But uh, um, I arrived in Australia in 2000. So uh, when I was arriving here, no many people was here. It's about ten people, and but they set up their organization already. But after I arrived, every year a couple of people come. But later on, when the you know um, more and more people know about Australia, they get their the human rights and they get their uh, their legal status. So they start to come, uh, you know, more and more. But it was a start actually in 1999. So your office is. Your office is based in Lakemba. Um, the Rohingyas mostly settled in Sydney. Um, yes, uh, um, majority um, actually uh, living in Sydney, and secondly in Melbourne and Brisbane. So they and um, also is all over the uh, other cities as well, a little bit of, but uh, mainly there in Sydney. And the reports of persecution of the Rohingya started as early as the 1960s, but it only really started being reported in the 80s and then largely in the last uh, few years after the Rakhine State riots. Yeah, that's right. Actually, um, Rakhine State riot is a start in 2012, which is the Tenzin government actually is the worldwide uh, you know, um, uh, it was a, a attack on Rohingyas. Uh, I wouldn't call it right. I can call this the attack, one blanket attack on Rohingyas to get rid of them fully. Uh, okay. The International State Crime Initiative released a report that the Rohingya are on the brink of, extinct, of extinction and that they are facing the final stages of genocide. How true do you think that is? Is it only going to be a matter of time before the Rohingya are completely wiped out? Yes. I'm completely agree with that and I have no doubt about it. And before it's too late, if the international community is, doesn't actually uh, work more uh, to save uh, 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 the Rohingyas and they will be wiped out. I strongly believe that. How does that feel for the community in Australia? I mean, they are far far away from the atrocities, but it still must hit close to the heart. Yeah, because it's every single family, and whoever has in Australia, I can tell you about my home, my home, we are, uh, you know, I, I, so um, just last night, we went to my uh, my home, I got my brother there, and they went in there, do whatever I can under the games was there, and my brother was there. If my brother was there, he could have uh, got, uh, you know, killed or uh, taken by the, uh, you know, authority and do whatever they like. Because it's just happening to the everybody, to every single family. So, and the, uh, the ladies, most of the time, they just, uh, you know, um, a 
Do you feel the wave of Islamophobia in the West is contributing to the lack of attention the Rohingya are receiving? Um, on that, uh, honestly, um, uh, no, it's uh, mostly like the military government, and obviously they're not getting as much as special what they should get, and that's why they keep doing it, and uh, also. Um, as you know, the the Arkan Strait, where are the mostly Rohingyas are living there? And if that media openly see that, I don't think anyone um, uh, can stop worrying about those people. So you, what you see in the media about the, uh, what happening to the Rohingyas, this is like you can see one or two percent, but still ninety per ninety eight percent is hiding there. So as the government is successing with the uh, you know, uh, do whatever they can do and hide so they keep doing it. Mm. So they're actually hiding the whole crime, what they're doing. But the, what you see in the media, what you think at the, at the action of there is, is uh, almost, you can say, is nothing. So uh, they are actually very successful. The Tenzin government is very successful on uh, getting the publicity in Burma, brainwashing the, those, uh, you know, innocent for me, the public, you know, um, telling the lying and about the Rohingyas, you know, and getting the excuses, uh, you know. But the historically, if you go, um, whoever the educated person, they know what who the Rohingyas are. But the uh, the, the majority, uh, you know, in Burma, they are actually um, don't know much about the outside world. So um, that's why they've been actually supporting the government and the government actually. Uh, trying to work those people out in the meantime, they're doing, uh, you know, yeah, um, they're actually um, getting um, two things, uh, like you can say, uh, one is not too bad. One way they're finishing the Rohingyas, uh, the other way they're actually um, uh, earning the public, uh, getting the public support. Given that... For the, yeah. the election. Given that the... That Burma is a very closed-off country. How? What can we do in Australia to aid the Rohingya crisis? Do we work from home and aid the community here, or do we, I guess, like take it further and like change the international outlook? Um, I think we should uh, um, uh, do further, and, and and aid is not enough. And if you're aiding them, and it's not going to the Rohingya. And it's mostly going to the the authorities' hand, and if there is any lack of, most of it is going to the, you know, and some communities, uh, you know, and uh, and it's not going to where it has to go. So um, what we should do, we should actually um, raise awareness of it and to head to the any action with the international community. Now I would like to request uh, um, the audience. Uh, and uh, whoever actually getting this uh, message and try their best for the uh, sake of the humanity to save the humanity to do whatever they can for the righteous. I'm Francesca Ramsey, and you're listening to The Race Card. Oh. Do you, um, have you heard of the term white privilege? White privilege? No, not really. What do you think it means? I wouldn't even know, no. What's I haven't got a clue. Like? don't know seriously privilege means being able to uh, go where you want without fear of being attacked 
um, or like persecuted for how you look. Yeah. Hey. All right. So no, five seconds. Five seconds. Good for it. All right. So, what does the term white privilege mean to you? Yeah. What does what? White privilege. Uh, there is not such a thing. Man. Not for me. Not for you. No, man. We are all the same. That's all. We bodies red. We are all the same. All brothers. Uh, <laughs> what does the term white privilege mean to you? Uh, well, privilege for white people, I guess. Yeah, so, uh, is this like racism kind of stuff? <laughs> what does it mean to you? Just your head. Well, I guess, Centrelink. White privilege, I guess, is the kind of um, specialty or privileges that the white people have here, I mean we're talking about the local white Australian, they're having you know, having access to welfare, housing and everything that is um, being state provided, I assume What does the term white privilege mean to you? Um, wow that's a, <clears throat> that's a pretty hard hitting question um, I suppose White privilege is kind of a monopoly of power and ideas when it comes to things like business, politics, government, media, uh, even things like the police and the military, dominated by people who all have uh, a collective set of assumptions that never gets tested by the people around them. You're listening to Sin 90.7, and we are the race card. That was Omar Fendum with Syriana Americana. Remember, you can get involved in all the discussions by texting in on 0427-767-767 or tweet us at the race card. Now we're moving on into our next segment, The Week That Was, where we highlight what's been happening during the past week. This week, um, we're going to be talking to Indigenous journalist Stan Grant, who, who, had, who wrote a common piece during the week and spoke to uh, spoke about the acceptable faces of indigenous people in Australia on ABC's Radio um, National. People like me and Adam, and I write this in the piece, are in, a, in many ways the acceptable face of indigenous Australia. It's very easy to relate to people like me and Adam because we live among you. We've achieved a measure of success. We are people that you can identify. But what about people you don't see? What about those people who are dying still 10 years younger than other Australians? What about the fact that it is more likely for an Indigenous kid to end up behind bars than it is for that kid to finish high school? What about the fact that we are less than 3% of the population and we're about 15% of infant mortality? There are people who never have a chance to achieve the success of people like me or Adam Goods. We have Stan on the line now. Hi, Stan. Thanks for coming on the show. You say the likes of you and, and Adam are more relatable and to to an extent more palatable to the mainstream. Why do you think that is? Well, because we are seen in the sort of broader public as being so-called success stories. And that is that Australia has always been more comfortable with Indigenous people who live lives very similar to the broader mainstream Australia. That's what the assimilation policy was all about effectively turning people white. Now, while Adam and I have very strong Indigenous identities, there is no doubt that because of 
our relative success because, you know, we live in the suburbs of the cities, we're visible people who will become much more comfortable with us than they would do necessarily with another Indigenous person that perhaps they didn't know was living in tougher circumstances. That can be, that can appear often very confronting to mainstream Australia. The point I was making in the article was that let's not confuse the success of individuals with the ongoing suffering of the broader Indigenous population. Individual success does not negate the need to actually address the really fundamental issues that still afflict Indigenous people right throughout the country, and that is that people die 10 years younger on average than other Australians. Infant mortality is... You know, we're, we're fewer than 3% of the population infant mortality in Australia is around about 15%. We're 25% of the prison population, 50% of the juvenile detention population. Diseases that have afflict us that has long been wiped out of mainstream Australia. So the point of the, the article was that while Adam and I and other Indigenous people who have attained some level of success may appear to be more palatable, may appear to be more acceptable, may appear to be more comfortable, don't overlook the fact that there's still hard work to be done. Definitely. Um, is there an issue, I guess, in the discourse about Indigenous people, not only in society, but particularly in the media, given your experience? Um, I, I guess you've you've seen a lot. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I, I've seen a lot. I've, I've seen a lot sort of as a reporter overseas as well and, and looking at the suffering of other people there and seeing how similar in many circumstances it was to um, the plight of my own people here. And, that is, you know, if you were in a war zone, if you were in Afghanistan or Iraq or Pakistan and you've seen people whose lives have been upturned by conflict, who have lost all certainty in their lives, who are struggling to find meaningful, dignified lives and survive, um, it's directly applicable to here. This is the sort of situation that Indigenous people have faced directly in terms of frontier conflict, the post-conflict stage, the ongoing psychological trauma, intergenerational trauma, um, which manifests itself in the whole range of socioeconomic um, indicators that show Indigenous people are the worst off in the country. So, you know, there is a direct correlation between dispossession, um, injustice and the ongoing suffering of Indigenous people. And that's that's obvious. In your piece in The Guardian, you say words of support and compassion don't alone alone don't fix this problem. Uh, sending children Indigenous uh, children to private school alone doesn't fix this. Adam Goods winning the Brownlow or me winning a TV Logie mm. Award doesn't fix this. So are we looking for simple solutions for very complex issues? Look, let's not overlook the need for individuals, individual Indigenous people, to be able to lead meaningful, successful lives. That's what we all want to be able to achieve. And I wouldn't diminish the individual success or achievement of anyone. You know, if some Indigenous kid can make it through high school, if some Indigenous kid can get access to a private school education and on to university, that's fantastic. You know, if Adam Goods and myself or others are seen to be successful, that's fantastic. But that sometimes obscures the real work that still remains to be done. As I said before, individual success does not negate the suffering of other people. And broadly, right through um, Indigenous society, uh, in comparison to non-Indigenous society in Australia, we occupy the lowest rung of the ladder. So, you know... We, we sometimes imagine that individual success is the answer. Individual success is good for the individual. It doesn't necessarily translate to survival or improvement for the broader community. And for that, again, the point of the article is that for that you need to look at systemic and fundamental change. 
empowering the lives of Aboriginal people to be able to decide their own futures, to be able to manage their own destiny. Um, that involves discussion about treaty and sovereignty and all of these things that other countries have been able to negotiate very successfully um, that we in Australia are still afraid to actually tackle. So individual success should not um, deter, uh, distract from the, the work that still needs to be done uh, and the systemic and fundamental change that is needed to empower Indigenous people to have control over their own lives. Thanks for coming on the show, Stan. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Good on you. Thanks, Catherine. We're heading to a quick music break. Don't forget to get involved in all of the discussions by texting in on 0427-767-767 or tweet us at the race card. Coming up is Omar Fendim's hashtag Syria. I don't know, I don't date white guys, which is really weird, but like, it's just like, it's not necessarily a decision I made, it's just something that just sort of came and like, I've noticed a pattern, I guess. <laughs> um, do you think the pattern is, I don't know, like a good, a good thing for you? It's worked in your favour? Yeah, it's, it's worked in my favour, I'd say, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, are you fascinated with people from certain cultures more than others? Like, um, I like the Australian people here. They're really nice. Yeah, yeah, I like the Australian people. But maybe that's because they also actually migrated mostly from Europe. So, yeah, there's a bit of a connection already there. Not most people have, like, grandparents. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Parents come from Europe and stuff. They have something more yeah. to talk about. Do you have particular preferences of certain culture groups over others? Um, yeah, I think so, yeah. <laughs> what, what, would, what are they for you feeling comfortable with? Uh, yeah, I feel a bit more comfortable around Europe, people from Europe or Aussie people, yeah. Or if they at least speak properly English or, yeah, if they look Asian but they, they are from Europe or their parents are European or Aussie, then it's a bit, bit more comfortable. Important <laughs> thing we have to consider whenever we want to become a relationship first. Uh, I don't believe in religion, but anyway, I mean that the background of the business is important because, for example, a Muslim cannot become friends with a Jewish. Okay, so I don't believe in religions, but anyway, but it has an effect. The other thing is the one of them is religion. The other one is the nationality. For example, an Iranian cannot. Uh, there are a lot of cases, but you know, it's rare. But you know. Actually, so the nationality, for example, an Iranian cannot uh, marry to, for example, I don't know, maybe Chinese. So they have some conflict. So I think two things that I wish. You're listening to Sin 90.7 FM, and we are the race card. Remember, you can get involved in all of the discussions by texting in on 0427-767-767 or tweet us at the race card. Our contributor, Arundhati Lakshmi, looked um, at the appropriation of Eastern religions with Tavlin Tarand. Here's how it went down. 
They are saying they want us to go to jail, they want us to remove the tattoo. The cop is calling a hoisala, so I'm waiting for the hoisala. Two weeks ago, a white Australian couple were mobbed in India over a Hindu deity leg tattoo, which offended greatly BJP activists who called it an insult to Hindus. The owner of the said tattoo, Matthew Keek, defended his comments, stating, I respect India and Hinduism completely. That's why I spent 35 hours getting a massive Ganesha put on my back and four hours getting the goddess of the lowest rung of Indian society, Yelama, on the only bit of space I had left on my body. Today we're talking to Tavlan Taran, who is a Punjabi, Malaysian, Irish American and studies international relations and psychology at the University of Queensland about cultural appropriation and the Western popularization of Eastern religions. So Tavlin, what do you think of Matthew's comment connecting his respect for Hinduism with the reason he has the tattoo of Yelama? Well, in my opinion, um, I think that if you really did and truly respect a culture that much, um, you wouldn't get a tattoo on your body, especially not on your above your on your leg ab um, of it, because that is actually probably the most disrespectful thing you can probably do. Um, growing up, I've been to many Hindu temples. My family speak, but um, we also like went to a lot of Hindu temples just because we lived in Malaysia, which is a large um, Hindu population there. Mm -hmm. And um, I was always told to sit in a very proper way. Um, to not show my leg, um, to not face my legs towards any deities, even in um, Sikhism, mm. same thing, cross my legs. So it's, I've always been brought up with this idea that, you know, just your foot and your legs, just, it's a very, you just can't, um, you know, place it towards anywhere near um, these deities because it's such a, because they're supposed to be above you. They're like supposed to be respected. I guess, um, what do you think about, because Matthew also said, like, my spiritual journey is my decision. So he was saying he get, I guess he has some agency over the way that he you know, enacts his, like, supposed Hindu beliefs. What do you think about um, the idea of, like, a more Western Hinduism? What, like, do you think that sits well? Well, I think the thing is, like, it's not just, like, his, you know, his spiritual journey and therefore his choices. Like, the the religion is what it is. Like, if it, it it's not just, like, he doesn't get to make up the rules. I don't know, I guess it's also just kind of ignorant of people who are actually from that culture and doesn't even take into consideration from people who have, you know, born into this culture, people born into this religion, who have, you know, grown up with it. It's just a bit ignorant, like saying, oh, this is my thing, and I'm going to do it like this. Like, it's sort of a bit like Western imperialism. Yeah. It's sort of like taking little, like, mishmashes of, like, Eastern culture and then suiting it to the way they like when it's not actually like that at all. And it's a bit unfair because then people who are actually, you know, from that culture, who are Indian, who are, you know, Asian, you know, they get discriminated against because of their religious beliefs. And then people like this, like this guy, get to just kind of have like a free pass card. Yeah. Just... Do you think that this reflects like, you know, like a sharing? Or do you think that this just, again, reflects purely Western imperialism? I think it's... It's pretty much yeah, Western imperialism and <laughs> yeah. appropriation because um, the way it, it's I think there's a difference between just appreciating the culture and then just completely taking it as yours and claiming it as yours and appropriating it. Nerving, I guess, to have people who are these like Western people just come in and be like, oh, look, I'm a Buddhist and mm. look at my like Buddha, look at my cool like trendy Ganesh statue, yeah. <laughs> and it's seen as like cool and like hip and like trendy. Whereas like if you go and see, like, an Indian person in their houses, you know, like my house, for example, I'm full of, like, deities and full of, 
you know, full of um, pictures of like, um, you know, Guru Nanak and Ganesh statues yeah. everywhere. And the thing is, it's not just about having these Ganesh statues. There's so much more to it. Like, mm. why do you think Eastern religions, especially Buddhism and Hinduism, have like invited that asceticization like more than others? I think it's just this, like, I think it's because it's the other, it's the unknown, and it's sort of like this exotic other, and just the fact that it's like people just, when they think of Buddhism, the first thing they think of is, oh, peace, um, you know, peace and love and meditation and finding yourself, and that's what people think of with Hindus, they just automatically, that's just the first thing I think of is like, oh, mindfulness and peace and harmony and that's why I like it you know I'm drawn to it you know this is so much more me than you know Abrahamic religions or whatever yeah I mean I guess whenever I think about um this like aestheticism of Hindu religions the first thing I think of is the Beatles um yeah in terms of like their role in popular culture and like like you said about peace and like you know, yeah. anti-Vietnam movements, a lot of the time that was, like, a lot of the imagery of, like, hippie movements in general would was completely just derived yeah. from Eastern religions. I guess, how do you think we can, like, stem that? Because it's been going for 30, 40 years in the West in terms of that, like, broad-scale appropriation of Eastern religions. I think it's just more about, I guess, educating people. And, like, it's fine if you're really interested in a culture, like, like I said, it's fine if you're interested in it and want to learn more, but there's a fine line between, you know, being interested and learning more about the culture and interacting with people from that culture and just talking to them and then just completely blatantly appropriating it and making it your own and just yeah. being like, and it's not even, the appropriation isn't even like in line with like Hinduism, like general <laughs> yeah. Hinduism, like no. it's like, like having like a blanket that has the own sign on it doesn't even relate to I don't know any Hindu person that has that like I don't I literally have never been to anyone's house that's like in my Indian friend's house or anything mm. and seen someone with like just like random om you know like yeah. pictures and stuff everywhere it's it's just not what it is mm. I don't know I guess to wrap up um in on a note of education what would you say to someone who I mean I mean I'm saying mostly like an a white person who who wanted to get involved in Hindu religions based on what they've known from, like, I guess, Western media. What would you say to someone who wanted to get involved in that to, I guess, educate them or dissuade them? I I tell them that well, first of all, if they're if they're basing all of this on just Western media, then that's pretty offensive because mm -hmm. that's not even what Hinduism is really about. And second of all, like you don't have to become a Hindu or you know convert or you know like just sort of like appropriate it. And if you're interested in it, like you could just like read up on it, and learn more, and just I don't know, like just like talk to people from that culture. What is racism? No idea, mate. No idea? Depends who you're asking. My friend will tell you I'm very racist. <laughs> no, you're not. What's my definition of racism? Well, doesn't it? People, racist people are racist people. They don't like any other colours, nationalities. Yeah. Thank you. What is racism to me? Something stupid. I don't agree with it. Don't like it. Don't think it should exist. What's racism? Um, I don't know. Racial prejudice. What about you? Just ignorance and hate. Thanks.
Um, fear of other races. What about your friend? Fear of other races. You can copy my answer. Yeah, thanks. You're listening to Sin 90.7, and this is the race card. Remember, you can get involved in all of the discussions by texting in on 0427-767-767 or tweet us at the race card. So we're moving on into our feature discussion. Um, climate change is a serious phenomenon with serious consequences for the most vulnerable peoples. For indigenous peoples, there is more in the line than rising temperatures and tides. We've got Ellen Van Nierven on the line to explore this area further. Ellen Van Nierven is an award-winning Indigenous Australian writer. Her writing has appeared in publications such as McSweeney's Review of Australian Fiction, Overland, Frankie Magazine, The Lifted Brow, Mianjin, Oranuyand, A Mascara Literary Review. Have we got Ellen on the line? Hello? 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 Hi, Ellen. Hi, Ellen. Well, welcome to the race card. I'm having a little bit of trouble hearing you. Oh, all right. Um, can, uh, am, am I loud enough now? Uh, hello? 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 Hi, um, can you hear me, Ellen? Yeah, just barely. Oh, okay. Sorry. Oh, that's all right. Um... All right. Um, is it all right if I just ask the question and hello? Hello, Ellen. Can you hear us? Hello. Yeah. 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 Cool. That's better. Okay. Um, Ahmed, do you want to do these questions? Uh, all right. So, so Ellen, in your piece, the country is a body for right now. You write about how climate change, environment de- degradation, and disproportion- uh, disproportionately affect indigenous people. Why is this so? Uh, well, firstly, I'd, I'd just like to say I'm no expert of any kind. Um, uh, I'm a writer and an Aboriginal woman. I'm Murray from South East Queensland. And, and what I wanted to do in this piece, I guess, was to raise awareness of these huge issues and challenges for our country. Um, but I don't pretend to have the knowledge or answers, I hope, to, to point readers in the right direction. Um, so I quoted the UN in, in my essay. Um, I found you know this quote to be quite powerful. Um, it goes, Indigenous people have the smallest ecological footprints in the world's community um, and should not be asked to carry the heaviest burden of adjusting to climate change. Um, so I think that's it's a really strong statement. Um, so I wrote firstly about the, the Torres Strait Islands and Northern Australia, you know, starting from the north of this country um, and some of the most affected communities. Um, they're really feeling the effects of rising sea levels and an increase in devastating weather. Uh, you know, researchers are calling um, the Torres Strait Islands um, a litmus test for how we react to uh, these challenges as a country. You know, land is disappearing fast and these places are becoming unlivable. And for many Indigenous people, place is so entwined with culture and well-being. What's problematic here is that these people aren't getting their say or their voices heard. Right. 
Um, when you mentioned disappearing land means disappearing culture, how does our environmental degradation and climate change impede Indigenous people's rights and access to justice? Again, I think it's because the land and sea are so profoundly linked to Indigenous cultural identities. Um, so in that case, changing climate threatens, for example, ceremony, uh, hunting practices, sacred sites, bush tucker, medicine, which in turn affects law, um, I mean, Indigenous law, home, health, education, livelihood and purpose. Uh, I think we need, particularly for our young people, our identities to be strong. Uh, with strong people come strong communities. Right. And what also stood out for me in your in your article was when you um, when you echoed Tony Bridger's words, for Indigenous people, the impact of climate change is not a future event. It has occurred in the past, and it is occurring now. Um, could one say environmental degradation and climate change are the resulting impacts of imperialism and colonization? Oh, absolutely. I agree strongly on that. Um, I think the evidence is there. Right. Um, and also in your article, you talked about how Indigenous peoples actually do have knowledge and they, you know, they have been doing this for, for, since, since forever, basically. And Western institutions have historically devalued Indigenous knowledge, including areas of taking care of the environment. So what, what, what would you say to these institutions that are now looking for complex solutions and not, um, inquiring with Indigenous people? Yeah, look, I, I think it's, you know, I hope that, this is slowly changing and because um, I think as long as we as a country continue to ignore Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander knowledges and perspectives, uh, we're going backwards. Right. And how would non-Indigenous people support environmental causes without further impeding the voices, the rights and the justice being fought for by Indigenous people? Uh, look, I I think um, listening to our elders, and, and these are old people who have, have seen a lot, and they, they can be both Indigenous and non-Indigenous. Um, so just, you know, looking around and, and being open, you know, don't kid yourself in thinking there wasn't a prior occupation of the place that you're living and, and there's no local First Nations people. You know, find out as much as you you can something that I think uh, is just a small thing that could be about finding out the original name of the place that you're living in. You know, not not the the European name, but you know the Aboriginal name, and then and then you know kind of does that change the way that you think about the place? Um, so connect with the history of the place you're living in, uh, the local issues, initiatives, uh, in terms of having a look at other resources. Uh, I recommend looking at SEED, an Indigenous Youth Action on Climate Change. They're doing some good stuff. Uh, There's a lot of good research out there. And, of course, Uncle Tony Birch's writing is work that I reference often. It's powerful. Um, Uncle Tony's from Melbourne, lives in Melbourne. And I think it's relevant to all of our lives to, to have a look at what's going on. Well, thank you so much for talking to us, Ellen. Oh, thank you. Thank you for, for reading the piece and, and, and wanting to have me on the show. Um, thank you very much. It's all right. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Alan, uh, before you, you go, I guess, where can our listeners um, find more of your writing and um, or anything anything like that? 
You're listening to Sin 90.7 FM, and we are the race card. Remember, you can get involved in all of the discussions by texting in on 0427-767-767 or tweet us at the race card. And that was freeway hashtag January 25. Sorry. Ahmed, did you want to talk about something? Yeah, I think you mentioned um, off-air about... about, uh, Because obviously, Halloween was... Last night, um, not last night, just yesterday, it wasn't necessarily night, but <laughs> whenever someone talks about Halloween, they talk about the night and it being dark and scary and right. everything like that and all those connotations. Oh, that's why I said night anyway. But um, yeah, so apparently the reason we think about zombies and the way the way where zombies originate is from the Caribbean, was it? Yeah, actually, I was doing a little bit of research and I came across this article where the history of zombies is little known, basically. Um, it came from uh, the the ways um, slaves in, in the Caribbean were actually treated. Basically, they would be worked to death. So they would be worked so hard. And um, some of these psychological terrorism that they would have to endure is even in their death, they would still be working. Um, there was no relief, um, particularly um, if they... Uh, yeah, uh, that was one of the things that um, stood out for me. Um, and I think it's very interesting how we look at it today. Zombies is something that comes from movies. Um, there is no connection to the real world. It's something that's seen as supernatural. Um, the stories of people struggling is totally erased from it. Um, it's fantastical even though to me it strikes me as a reminder of how cruelly people were treated at one point. And you could even argue uh, being treated today. Yeah, I guess it's just interesting sometimes where we find out the meanings of certain words like picnic and and that, and that connotation and, and, and a lot of other things and how they came to be. And Halloween, you know, October 31st. Mm-hmm. Where did that come where, from? Where did picnic come from? I'm just curious. Uh, I, I don't think I'd be. It'd be wise for me to say this on right. uh, on, on on radio. It's just pick and uh, n word. Anyway, uh, right. I'll, I'll leave that. I'll leave that to one side. Um, and I guess we're we're almost we're almost done, aren't we? Yeah, we are. I think we're gonna have to start wrapping up. Well, thank you so much for listening. It's been an interesting episode. I am your host, Amina Ziard, and my co-host, Puppy Pro. And Ahmed Yusuf, remember you can find the show um, on Twitter at The Race Card, and you can also find us on Mixcloud, um, iTunes, Podcast Republic, um, just by searching Race Card, as well as you can find me personally on Twitter at Ahmed Yusuf10, the number 10, and I'm pretty sure they can find you as well. Yeah, you sure can. And uh, yeah, I guess that's the show for this week. Yeah, I still don't have Twitter, but um, please get on at the race card. Um, you can also find race card on Facebook, so forward slash race card show, and you should be able to like us, share us, subscribe, and listen to more. Uh, Till next week, thank you for listening. Bye. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 